talking art, music, Nolan on Lovell event. Um, BM Can Blue Mountains Creative Arts Network has been running our talking art sessions for 10-11 months now. But we've merged with uh, Julie Anchors and Talking Art Program from Radio Blue Mountains. We've also joined up with Ian Morrison from Katoomba Music to do some music. So uh, we're going to be interviewing Ian later. And Julie and I are going to be sharing invited guests along Ooh. Talking Art. So it's a real combo, combo. event. And we're hoping to draw lots of people who'd be interested in hearing about arts in the mountains, arts in a general sense, diverse as we can make it. But look, I'm absolutely thrilled to um, invite Julie and I thought these two women I know it's not going to be any problem saying introducing them um, and I'm a little bit intimidated because they're amazing women uh, I've known Julie for not as long as Liz Liz was actually gracious enough when she was running um, Stop Laughing This Is Serious gallery up in Blackheath to give me a show which was just blew my mind because I thought nobody wants to look at my eyes when I was doing art therapy and it was sort of very deep in the psychological spaces. <laughs> um, so I've known Liz for quite a while, but I know Liz is somebody who moves heaven and earth um, and in a sense, literally, uh, for the planet. Um, and look, I'm not going to go into too much detail now because I know Julie's going to do that, but Julie's also a, a, a giant in women's, the world of women and promotion and writing and the over 50s um, and the Radio Blue Mountains. So look, we're so privileged to have these two women in conversation together today. Thank you so much for participating. I know you're both very busy. Um, and uh, we, what we're going to do is we're going to have uh, this conversation, we're going to podcast this conversation. So we'd ask that if you've got a mobile phone on you, if you could just switch it on silent so that doesn't come out in the podcast. Um, and also we're going to have about 40 minutes of the conversation uh, and then we'll stop the podcast and we'll open for questions or conversation or discussion. So if there's anything that sort of inspired you through the conversation, please feel free to ask questions. Uh, and then after that, we'll have a break. We've got some um, wine and coffee and tea and a few nibbles. Um, the, we're a voluntary organisation, so if you'd like to make a donation, we really appreciate that. Or in future, if you want to come along, bring a plate or bring a bottle with you, uh, and then don't worry about the donation. Um, so look, we're really, um, we're really inspired to see artists and arts interested people get together and learn from each other and inspire each other. So if you feel you fit into that category, please come along. Uh, we'd love to make you feel welcome and uh, have you join us. So we're here the first Saturday of every month from three o'clock. Sometimes we'll have a music uh, session in the afternoon with a well-known uh, local musician. Uh, sometimes we won't. But anyway, the promotions will be going out, so you'll, you'll find out who's on. 
Um, next month, sorry, this is taking eating into your time. No, next month we have um, photographer Marty Walker and the musician composer Peter Long. Uh, they did a project uh, in St Mary's called Queen Street Project, which was sponsored by uh, Penrith Council. Uh, and that was to what, what they did was record um, seven diverse cultural groups uh, making food together and celebrating food. Uh, so they're going to come along and talk about that project that they did, but also they're going to give a bit of background into uh, their personal uh, practice, like their, their musical and arts practice. Um, and following that, Oh, I'm, I'm getting, I don't know who's going to be interviewing me yet, but I have an um, uh, expose show exhibition at the Blue Mountains Cultural Centre Gallery in October. So I'll be speaking about that project, which is a local project. It's about um, the gully and Kadumba Creek. Um, so please come along and support me. <laughs> Um, and then November, we have the great John Ellison in conversation, who will also have his artwork up around the, the wall. Um, so please join us for that. And then December, we'll probably party. So, <laughs> um, anyway, I think that's a good time for me to hand over. There's a bathroom out the back if anybody needs that. And um, enjoy. Thanks, Sweden. That's great. Okay, it's great to see so many people here. So welcome. It's fantastic. And uh, I, as I'm one of this is probably one of her greatest fans. <laughs> the reason being is I, I, I'm an avid reader, and every time I read the newspapers or listen to radio or watch television, I feel incredibly depressed. And uh, if you believe everything you read, we are heading for doom. So I'm always excited when I read The Big Fix because it somehow it makes me feel so much better to think there are people out there who actually care about what's going on in the world. And so when Winnie and I got together and she said, who would you like to interview first or who would you like to bring in first? I could only think of one person and that was Liz because I just think that anybody who moves the mountains must have a love of this sort of country and when you live up here it makes you um, makes you want to care for the area and so and when I um, and so when I met Liz and saw that that's the sort of work that she was involved in that's what she believes in etc 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 uh, it just seemed natural that we should get together and uh, and talk about what makes Liz Bastian Liz Bastian. Now, does everybody know this is background? So, no, you're going to be asked questions later. You're going to be asked questions later. I'll tell you. Well, look, um, one of the things I loathe is when people uh, when they introduce somebody, they've got a bit of a list, and they go and like they're eating corn. So I thought, no, 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 we're not going to do that because this has actually, she has a quite impressive background and it has informed her, her well, informed her life work, I guess. So I'm just going to take a little bit of time to read it. You don't have to go right, Rick. Sorry. 
Um, because, well, let's just start with Liz Bastin is the founder of The Big Fix, a registered charity that is an umbrella organisation for Big Fix Solutions Media, Blue Mountains Pluriversity, Edgy Blue Mountains, Blackheath Community Farm and the Blue Mountains Permaculture Institute. She believes artists and storytellers are instrumental in leading social change. And it is the Big Fix's mission to work with the creative community to change the story to grow a collaborative, solutions-focused culture. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Liz has a long history in the arts, having been a high school art teacher, an education officer at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, curator at Orange Regional Gallery, Regional Arts Promotions Officer, and CEO of Arts Out West, owner of Stop Laughing is a Serious Gallery in Blackheath, CEO of Varuna, Cultural Development Coordinator, Blue Mountain City Council, Public Programs Manager at the Blue Mountains Cultural Centre, and Lecturer in Cross-Cultural Studies and Event Management at the Blue Mountains International Hotel School. She's also a writer, editor, illustrator, and has been an exhibiting artist, and uh, her creative focus is on social and environmental design. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> All I know is that makes me feel very tired. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. You've done all of that, yes. Now, where... I'm 21. <laughs> so how did it all begin? I mean, I, when this first came in, we sat down, I said, I'm going to ask you about your background. A lot of people know about the big fix and they know what you believe in, but they don't actually know a lot about who this bastion is and what informed that passion. So there you go. And when I asked you before, she said, I don't know. <laughs> but she's had a chance to think about it. Um, yes, it's a, a very big question and I think it's not one of those questions that anyone can fully answer honestly because we have so many things impact on us and we start telling stories about ourselves to ourselves all through our life. So. Yeah. To honestly understand why you are who you are is um, challenging with five minutes notice. Yes. <laughs> um, but if I basically uh, look back on my life very quickly, um, I guess my background is that um, my parents were migrants. My um, Everyone in my family is sort of different nationality and I have a history of broken families so we were forefronters for uh, sort of forerunners in divorce um, in our family so our families kept sort of breaking down a lot my mother was German so I from very early on I remember in primary school reading the diary of Anne Frank and feeling responsible because I was German and thinking you know who am I you know have I come from the people that did this to Anne Frank, so that's worried me since childhood and really from very early on the greatest influences in my life have been artists and writers and so they have guided my life, they have drawn me forward and have given me the answers and so I remember a period when I lived alone and I was terribly, terribly lonely but I had thousands of books and I thought, do you know what, these are my friends. 
these books represent people's lives, you know. People worked and reached for something higher in themselves and devoted years to putting it all down into a book and made a huge effort. So when I sit here in this room alone, <laughs> feeling quite miserable, I don't have to stay that way. I can think about these people surrounding me in the books. And I had a lot of art books as well, so it was visual art as well as writing. And I thought, you don't have to be here just in this moment in time. Humanity has existed for a long time and is going forward. And there are people who've cared passionately about one another and about the natural world and about who's coming and who's been. And that is like a continuum of passion and love and care that you can surround yourself with. And that gave me incredible comfort and inspiration. And I used to read a lot of those books, you know, where you get a collection of the hundred great lives. <laughs> and I just think, who will I read today to inspire me? You know? And then um, at one period, um, I was, uh, I'd grown up, grew up a Catholic um, and went in and out of believing as you do as a teenager. And at one period, I started reading people like Simone Weil and a lot of mystics and was so inspired by them. And there was one period in my life where I read um, A Saint a Day. <laughs> so <laughs> trying to think, I can be better than I, you know, I can be <laughs> like these people, like these wonderful people who inspire me. Um, and I started becoming a nun at one stage um, and then I was working in a soup kitchen in Darlinghurst and I thought you know what these people really want someone to love them you know and I decided that rather than following that path and I just couldn't quite agree with a lot of things I was being told as well um, I decided that it was perhaps more important to just connect and I decided that I didn't need um, an organisation um, to mediate or tell me what mattered, that um, I could have, I could try and understand what beauty and love is, you know, what that incredible thing is that inspires us and just go to it directly without other people telling me and I think I'd been as a young child and as a teenager I never had confidence in my own thoughts and that's so why I was always you know reading great people and saints and everybody else and turning to everyone else for advice you know what do you think and what and then suddenly at the point where I stopped doing that I realized I could hear that myself and I didn't have to keep asking people that somehow if I really observed and listened I, I was able to work that out for myself because I'd had such a background in everything I'd read and I'm a voracious researcher and reader every single day still, still <laughs> so that I'm always trying to um, build a framework to use for my decision making and so I guess that became the thing and then I went on, um, I, I sort of dropped out of 
a lot of courses. I'm the sort of, when I used to speak to view clubs and people like that, groups in central New South Wales, I used to say, I'm the sort of, you know, it's really good for mothers to come and hear me give a talk because I'm like your worst nightmare. I'm the child that drops out of every course and doesn't know what they're doing and, you know, start something again, start something again. And so I went to Sydney Uni, dropped out, went to Golden Teachers College, dropped out, um, went to work for a while, then went to art school. And when I went to art school, that's what I wanted. And I knew that's where I had to be. And so then I finished art school. And in my final week, I, the final lecture we had was how to apply for the doll. <laughs> but, um, but you know, that I knew that's who I was yes. because that's what had always inspired me and where I needed to be. So, do you consider yourself to be a social activist? I consider myself... be a little bit of a social activist amongst many other things. I think that anybody who cares about the world would act on social issues. Mm -hmm. So I would hope we would all act because um, there's a great quote that I, I've got millions of quotes <laughs> but there's a great quote I love which is um, uh, one does not believe who does not live according to his belief. So that if you believe something, you need to act on it. So therefore, yes, I would, you know, part of me could be described as a social activist. Yeah. Okay. How, uh, with all of that in mind... You how... could also call me an enviro slut. I'll do anything to help the environment. <laughs> 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 all right, that's good. We won't edit that so, uh, so just tell us how did the big fix emerge with all of that background, an amazing background, all of that reading, all of those saints, etc. Et <laughs> how did the big fix emerge? Okay, so that's another long story. So um, my background was in the arts. We started Stop Laughing This Is Serious Gallery when we moved to Blackheath with one-year-old twins. Um, and while I was there, um, a few people like Peter Shenston from Planet Ark and uh, various other people came and started getting into my ear about climate change. And that was something that hadn't, I've never really thought much about, it wasn't really on my radar. Um, and we went to the beach and people gave me books to read and so it really started to um, worry me. And then I changed with Al Gore and just started really getting worried about what was going on with climate change. So we started a climate action group um, called Blackie Climate Action Now. Um, uh, actually, I think we might have called it the Cake Club first because we wanted to get together and eat a lot of cake and cake stood for um, climate and clean energy. <laughs> but it was a good excuse to eat cake. And, um, and then we um, we just kept changing the name and Can and then we thought like a creative action network. You know, we just played around, but we just did lots of things. So we started an incorporated association. Then um, then I sort of began working permaculture with Bro Morrow. Then I became a climate adaptation officer for 17 councils in central New South Wales. And while I was doing that, it was after the failed climate talks in Copenhagen and nobody was really interested 
in doing anything on climate change. So I needed to run an environment summit. That was what the grant said. Um, so I said to all the 17 mayors and general managers, could I run a recharging the region summit instead? Let's kind of frame it a little bit differently. So let's recharge people's spirits after the global financial crisis. Let's recharge water tables because we're having problems with water. Let's recharge the electricity system because we know costs of electricity are going up. And could you give me Mount Panorama Raceway so I can run an electric vehicle challenge? <laughs> um, and they said, sure, Liz, anything you want to. <laughs> and um, so that's what, what we did. And we held this summit and it was really successful. But while I was doing it, I recognised that the reason people weren't acting and weren't doing a lot of things on climate change was because of the media and that the media wasn't a reflection of reality. So, um, and that was really, really um, problematic. I was at a meeting in Dubbo with um, a reinsurer speaking to all the um, heads of departments. I wasn't speaking, the reinsurer was speaking to heads of departments and they showed a, they came on, to the, you know, everybody in council and said, look, um, we're going to show you what we believe is happening with climate change and um, we're not really interested in what you have to say or what you think about it. So we're going to tell you what we believe. If you don't act on it in every department in council, we won't insure you. So that was what was happening at local government, in government. But in the media, they were saying, government doesn't believe in climate change. Do you believe? Uh, yes, so yes. I was seeing what was really going on and what the media was saying. Anyway, so I thought, in permaculture we say the problem is the solution. So I thought the media has to be, the media is the problem, the media has to be the solution. So I started a thing called the shiny halo. And I thought, rather than nagging people about what they should do, um, I really believe in throwing the best party. Um, <laughs> like I don't want to persuade people, I just want to, throw the best parties that people want to come. So what we did was we, I, what I started to do was um, look at system change takes everybody. The really big problems we have to deal with like climate change and poverty are what are described as wicked problems. They are so big and so complex that one person can't, or one group can't solve it. If you imagine it as a giant weaving, you pull one thread here that you think is the right thing to do, something goes wrong on the other side because you've pulled that thread. You pull another thread here, something else goes wrong. You need everybody at each thread working together collaboratively. So that's when I started trying to work out how we could increase collaboration and how we could get every sector involved and not have people burden shifting and saying it's up to government or it's up to business or it's up to individuals. It all started, do you remember, with people saying, you've got to change your light bulbs, like it's to you? Climate change will, we'll solve climate change if you act, as opposed to government That's or business. Right. But it has to be everybody. And so the shiny halo, I did a, a different story um, every week from every sector. So I did seven stories a week on what people were doing to build social, environmental, and economic resilience. And I gave, everyone who was doing something good a halo and um, so we just did, gave people lots of halo shiny halos and we did a, a shiny halo awards night and with light shows and all sorts of things and gave people awards for being wonderful and people discovered 
for example, that Lithgow Hospital is run on geothermal energy and most of the mayors and general managers didn't even realise that and Cowra Council. And so we unearthed lots of things and people suddenly became really proud of what the Central West was doing. And if anyone from Sydney came onto the blogs and said what they were doing, we planted a tree for them in Central New South Wales. And we had a map with trees popping up because of the actions of people in Sydney. So we, we were looking at collaboration from city to country, across sectors, and trying to start a picture of what everyone was doing and could do so that people would learn from one another. And that, when I left um, Centroc, where I worked for the 17 councils, I started The Big Fix. And it started in a small way, um, and then I kept having to go and earn money because <laughs> I've got children. <laughs> and so um, I went off and did various jobs and it kind of went on hold for a while. Then when I was lecturing at the hotel school in Lura, I started doing a PhD on how to accelerate social change. Um, so how could we accelerate change globally within a generation? And that was my research. And so then um, I convinced myself with my um, literature review that I was on the right path. So I thought, oh, I can't wait five years to do a PhD. I'm just going to start doing it. So I left and started The Big Fix. Fantastic. I told you it was a long story. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but I think you needed to tell that, you know. Now, all of the entities underneath it, like Pluriversity, etc., tell us about those and what they are and explain what they are. Okay, so what I did was I learned from all the work I've done in different organisations and community groups, and the general thing that usually happens is that people work really, really hard to make their art or to run their festival or to build their product or do whatever they're doing and then towards the end they think, oh, I've got to promote it and let people know. So I thought, I'm going to build all the um, media outreach before I do all the other hard work. So I started for the first couple of years just doing social media and sharing seven solutions stories a day and um, just to start getting, getting the audience base. Um, I also started the Permaculture Institute with Ron Morrow, which looks at social and environmental design and redesign. So that gave a method of training people. Um, and I started, so I started to look at if we really, okay, I'll tell it to you. This, I'm going to paint you a bit of a visual picture because I'm interested in how do we build a better system the, the best way I can describe it is to help you think of a forest. If you try and think of a, a giant tree in the middle of winter, you know how they have big, grand, giant trunks? You see them around the mountains. Huge, huge trees with giant branches and no leaves at the moment. And as the trees get bigger and bigger, the twigs and branches start to fall off. Um, trees drop seeds. But when you've got a big canopy, those seeds don't germinate because that tree shades out the area beneath it. Um, where um, there's a, a field, new trees might come up, but in a, under a big tree, not much new growth comes up. But what's happening is with these giant trees, twigs and branches are breaking off, then borer starts to get in, 
and diseases and everything like that. Now you could think of that as our system, our social system, our economic system, our education system. Same way, all systems work the same way. They have a, a life and then they start to deteriorate because they get too big. And if you imagine you're someone working out on a twig over here, trying to be the best twig you can possibly be, um, you're very far from the trunk where the borer and the rot is setting in. <laughs> but you're doing everything you can over there, but it's not like a direct link to where it's starting. So what I'm trying to do is recognise that this big system is reaching that point and how do we get fresh new saplings up mm -hmm. with new ideas that will regenerate communities, landscapes, everything. We need the new growth. Mm -hmm. But um, in the same way we um, you know, respect old growth forest trees, we need to respect the societies and the institutions and everything that came before, even if there is some rot there, because it's the culmination of many people's lives and passion and learning. It's not all bad. It's easy to throw rocks and say it's all wrong, but it's not. Humans have put huge amounts of their life into setting things up. So the way I see it is the quicker we can get new ideas and new shoots up, when the tree begins to fall, which it will, I don't want the system to crash. I just want the tree to move over like it does in a healthy, rich, biodiverse forest and be held up by the saplings. So it will fall, be held up at an angle, new light will get in, the saplings can grow, and then all the knowledge and um, resources and everything in that big old tree will gradually decay and compost around the new growth and it all comes up. And that way you have a beautiful system where all life is valued, all everything that everyone's contributed to our society is is valued and the best goes into the new shoots. So what we're trying to do with a big fix is demonstrate it. So we're creating a new way of doing media, a new way of educating, which is the pluriversity, a new way of running business, which is social enterprises. And we've set up a collaborative youth social enterprise called Edgy Blue Mountains. New ways of communities coming together so because I don't go to church anymore, every Sunday at 10 o'clock I go to Blackheath Community Farm instead. And we get people coming together and we the first thing we grow there is community, um, more than plants. So that's our main goal is to grow community and to connect people in a beautiful outdoor natural setting. And then the permaculture is the design tool to help people redesign what they're doing and to remind people that we're part of the natural world and that it's all interconnected and that we mustn't forget that. Mm. Well, yes. So it's, a, it's basically a whole system approach. And so we've, yes, and you, everything is interlinked, you know. You can't run an enterprise or a pluriversity without having the media and everything to tell the story and share it. If you do run it, you want to share what you've learned to get it further. We're also working um, with University of Western Sydney to set up the Lithgow Sprint on the abandoned campus mm -hmm. there. It's not an abandoned campus, it's a campus where they've stopped doing undergraduate courses and it's empty. But we will soon be doing things there, I hope. Um, but it's about um, 
being sort of proactive now to start helping all these new shoots grow with in collaboration with the big old tree <laughs> the and big old tree which brings me to the theme of, of um, our session hmm. which is about how art and story can help people navigate uh, navigate a new way um, in society with the world planet whatever mm. so talk a bit about that because i've noticed that you when you mentioned the big old tree you're painting that tree in everybody's mind and you know you're a great storyteller well um i'm an artist you are <laughs> and artists are creators we're in a world where there's a lot of destruction we need more creators we're in a world where there's a lot of people who've just become consumers. We need more producers, you know. So this is where we have a role to play to demonstrate creation as opposed to destruction and production as opposed to just consumption. What we have to all look at as artists is our underlying belief system and how much we're influenced by everything around us and one of the reasons I do the Solutions Media is that one of the reasons in the beginning was because after Copenhagen I saw a lot of people I knew who were very passionate just give up. And I thought, um, Naomi Klein said we're um, effed if we believe we're effed. Um, so um, we have a swear jar at work and all the kids make me put a dollar in whenever I swear so I've become intensely aware of not swearing. Um, so the the most important thing is to not give up and so what um, the point of the the big fix is to say to people we can either be followers or leaders. Arts have always been seen as a reflection of society you know, we, we see society reflected back to us through the arts. That's what people say a lot in academic writing and, and elsewhere. But um, originally the words art and science were the same word. And if you look back at people like Picasso, Picasso mixed with scientists. He wanted to get the new ideas and move people forward, not just reflect the society as it is now. We can just sort of passively reflect the society and do movies about dystopia and write dystopian novels and, and you know, hurtle everyone even faster to extinction. Or we can say, well, no, we can have a different way of looking at things and we can say perhaps um, there's another way of presenting the story that will help people live better. So one of my great heroes is Montaigne and Montaigne lived in a, a period that was way worse than what we're living in now. And he had a near-death experience. And I started reading him when I got very ill one year and thought um, they thought I might die. And so I had to kind of get ready for that. So I read all the books about people who, because I'm a researcher, I started reading books about how you die well. Um, so, and so then I read Montaigne and Montaigne um, recovered from his near-death experience while people all around him were dying and he said he discovered that death is incredibly efficient and death always succeeds at what death does. You know, death is 100% successful. Um, however, it's not our job to help death because death is so good at what death does. You know, our job is to live. You know, that is our job, to live. 
And so 100% until the minute death takes over to do death's job, we have to be fully alive and we have to live. And so in that moment, I realized that from now on, I would um, die livingly rather than live dyingly. And then that, when I actually didn't end up dying, <laughs> as it turned out, um, that helped me deal with all the stories about um, extinction and what might happen with the world. Because I thought, this has been the story of humanity, of life since the beginning of existence. We all go extinct. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but yes, we will all be extinct one day. Um, but our job until that very minute is to live. And whatever is going to happen with the planet, we can't drag everyone down and get young people suiciding because of this terrible, you know, extinctions existed since the beginning of time. Our job is to live and we need to live and show people how to live and throw the best party and get people to join us and bring people along with us and really love life because life is stunningly beautiful if there's social equity. And so we need to make sure that people can have access to the beauty of life. And that's the story artists can tell. And if you, you can either choose to live dyingly or die livingly. And when you make that choice, your art can reflect that. Do you see? So it's, a, well, it's your basic belief. Well, I think that that's fantastic. But what does everybody else think? Any questions? I think this is a very good time to ask if there are any questions. I'm going to jump in because I want to probe this a little bit more. Yes. Right. yes cool. is, there, is somebody going to ask a question here? I heard it. No. One of the things that I'll quickly tell you is that we're, I'm trying to um, I do a weekly digest where I always do three stories about arts as well as everything else. And what I'm trying to demonstrate is that um, in system change, the thing that changes systems more than anything, if you look at any of the study on system change, is our language and our story. Not the actions you do and the things you go and do, but your language and your story. So a lot of big businesses are now recognising they need artists to tell their story because there's so much media fragmentation they can't get through anymore. And so they're turning to artists to help them commercially to tell their story on every level. Artists have never been needed more than they're needed now. I would really like to flesh that out more with you Liz because I think um, for a lot of artists they can get consumed with their own story without actually finding a context for it that is hopeful or joyous or beautiful um, and I just wonder is, has that something to do with connection or being connected into something that reminds you that what you do is significant and that you can contribute? Do you have any thoughts about, you know, how artists connect to find a hopeful story that invigorates their art form, if you like? I'm not sure. Does that make sense? Is that a question that... Um, I'll try and answer it, and if I'm going down the wrong track, let yeah. me know. So, um, one of the things that builds 
resilience into communities that whether that's environmental or social communities is increased biodiversity you're all familiar with that the more biodiverse the system is the stronger it is and there's a danger in our culture that we think we're doing the right thing but we tend to polarize more and more and more and live in monocultures this is probably a little monoculture here today um, people who get involved in you know environmental movements or um, social, other social movements or you know whatever tend to especially with social media and everything tend to move more and more into monocultures that's not going to help the world you know wicked problems need collaboration from everybody and we need to find more ways to collaborate and create polycultures not monocultures that means that artists need to connect in with the broader diverse um, society um, to connect as a human with the rest of society and you will find purpose immediately in that and then you're, you will find purpose for your art within that because it's about um, collaboration and working together. I can honestly say to you that um, the challenges we're facing are extraordinarily immense on every level because of this increased polarization in the world. I, I think polarization is the biggest threat to humanity um, because we know that monocultures will systems collapse if you just have monocultures. So we are, through our polarization, thinking we're doing the right thing, inadvertently destroying the system. So the more we can cross-fertilize and mix with people maybe we would never mix with, um, that's why I'm in Rotary, um, because I'm <laughs> learning to mix with all different sorts of people and find common ground, because I think it's a wonderful way to connect and find ways to have something in common. I'm training myself in every way I can to move away from monocultural thinking and behavior. And that's why what we do with The Big Fix is so diverse, because I'm trying for it not to be just a monoculture. It's very difficult for funding bodies and other people Absolutely. because they yes. want you to be yes. one yes. thing. And universities want you to focus on uni, yes. one, one thing. thing. You know, when I did my PhD, the supervisor said, Liz, you know, you're not doing a PhD to save the world. And I said, oh, <laughs> then why am I putting five years of my life into this? <laughs> and they said, no, you've got to find one thing and get, you know, real. And I said, oh, no, it's not really what I was hoping to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to say no we need polyculture we need everything's interconnected we need to become interconnected because we are part of the natural world it's an interconnected living breathing system we are not um you know really i've, I've got with me one of my poems that i loved when i you know when, I, when he said yes. what influenced me just by yes. chance yes. I have yes. 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 and it was um john dunn who mm. lived around the same time as Montaigne, their mm, lives yes. sort of overlapped, 
and he wrote No Man is an Island. You know, we are not islands. Go home and read it again. It's a fantastic poem. And we need to find as many points of connection. And that's why I do, you know, Blackheath Local News and all these different things to create sticky communities so that we all touch one another and so that we know if someone's in need. And so, then, you know, your art will just immediately find so, so its relevance. It's, so it's about finding more that we have in common than we have with differentiators. I think we have to um, celebrate what we have in common and tolerate our differences. Mm. And that's how societies used to be. You know, that's the way nearly everything grew to create what we have now. It's just that now the tree's gotten so big and the branches are falling off <laughs> and we have to start again. It's and it's like, oh, sorry, Julie. No, I'm just wondering if anybody else had any questions. Yes. I have one. I'm going to try and get it together because my mind's buzzing because there's mm. so much in that. Yes. Um, I'm maybe I work in performing arts, so a lot of what you're saying, you know, resonates with me. Uh, but I wanted to be devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, interconnection of arts and business. Uh, a lot of my friends who have survived as actors have gone into corporate training, which means you share your acting skills with executives, could be defence department, could be Coca-Cola, could be all kinds of products, McDonald's, whatever, hypothetically. You are helping them get better at sell things that you don't necessarily believe in. So I'm just wondering from, you know, it's, it's fine and black Heath, sorry, I am being devil's advocate. No, no, I'm, um, I'm so with you. Yeah, I'm it's absolutely fine with you. black Heath where there are so many like-minded people, but you only have to go on the Nuggets um, community network to find file expressed, mm. like, you know, the campaign against the opioid, for mm. example, mm. Um, being conducted mm. last year. The file that's flying out of mouths about, um, you know, about the protests. Mm. Mm. Don't they want development up here? Don't they want jobs? Why haven't we got McDonald's in return? It just goes in this huge rash. So it's almost like I just find, you know, the thread you pull up here, affecting the thread down there, just uh. to go back to your other image. How on earth? You know, in, it's fine to be part of Rotary and Blackheath, but you know, in the Sydney level or somewhere like that, where I see my friends surviving by by having to give skills, valuable skills, and that would be their arts budget or training budget, and that's their contact with artists. So, so I just gave I gave an example of how businesses are turning to arts for that reason. Yes, but but, but what what I what I want to see mm. is the arts becoming involved in every other sector mm. as well mm. not just that one i'm just saying that they're identifying the need for artists so should everybody else be identifying the need for artists when i left in my final week of art school when we got told to apply for the doll a lot of my friends went oh no so they went into advertising yeah. because they couldn't find another way mm. to make a living and they became part of growing the great forgetting which I think of that period as the great forgetting because I link it to that ad for Glad Rap. What did we do before Glad came along? Mm. And they, the artists mm. and writers were coming up with the sort of memes and the advertising <laughs> to persuade us to forget what we did before Glad came along and just consume plastic, you know, plastic bottles, pla Glad Rap, everything. That was my, you know, teenage years. That's what was happening and the creative minds of the world persuaded us to do that. Um, 
the creative minds of the world can persuade us to do something different as well. So I'm not advocating at all to go into that. I'm just trying to get other people to switch on to see, you know, use the arts, use storytellers, get involved with creative people to you know, help show that neighbourhood centres matter and shouldn't have their funding axed, you know. Help explain that homeless people aren't all drug addicts. Help explain that shifting homeless people from Redfern at far out west, because it's cheaper there, of course, for them. Why don't they go out to the far west? Um, and then suddenly, you know, they have no support structures and suddenly you get problems in a community and you know that cleans up Sydney but you know people feel that's all okay do you know we need our storytellers in so many areas to provide a different story and to help people feel it not just know it you know and so yes you know we have to you know I had a I had a friend on the phone to me this morning saying we have to learn from Trump's playbook <laughs> How does he do it? You know, we, we learn from what people are doing and we make sure that the creative people of the world are involved in creation, not destruction, you know. And then we need to find... So one thing I'm trying to do now, and I may not be able to succeed, but, <laughs> but you know, I never... I, I, I think I don't yes. think ahead far enough so that I... I don't stop, you know, like if I thought about everything, about how hard it is, I might not start. But um, the thing I'm working on now is to try to have for every neighbourhood centre area, have um, a writer slash journalist slash artist employed for one to two days a week to work with everyone in the, you know, the community sector, council, everyone to work collaboratively and tell stories for that area and if every neighbourhood centre had that you start to employ your artists and writers and then that feeds into the news at a local level then at a bioregional level and then at a global level and then suddenly you don't have corporate control of the media telling us their stories and we tell the stories from communities where we see a lot of people actually collaborating um, but um, the polarisation exists and the polarisation is getting worse, I think. Mm. And that that bile is a sign of that polarisation. I don't think there would have been that much bile 50 years ago if the same issue came up. There may be, there may have been. I mean, if you look back at Vietnam War and everything, maybe maybe it's always been that way. But the bottom line is, it's it's not healthy. And I don't know the solution, but all I know is that it's important to try to um, use our creative minds. I mean, we're really creative. How We've got to find the solutions. Okay. Oh, go, yeah. Wendy. Go no, and also to tell the stories of those who are doing it. Mm. So that the artists and performers and musicians who are out being involved in this to let's have a look at what they're doing, let's see what they're doing, let's hear them, let's support them. And Wendy, that, and that's the way it used to be hundreds of years ago. You know, there were storytellers and, you know, 
all of that mm. and we've lost sight of that and so now you know what you're advocating is, is actually really going back into that because those people were really revered you know the fact that they you know because you know well they were and and, and there's a there's also it's also enough to create beauty because beauty makes life worth living as well do you know like everyone doesn't have to be a social activist with their art if you know what i mean it's what's well, a different form of social yes <laughs> you know the beauty yes social activism <laughs> well you know that art has is so has so many elements to it that benefits people um that i i just think you know the creative people of the world are the ones that should be nutting this out you know yes. and and there aren't simple solutions and you know it's not like the world even though i called our organization the big fix um it's not like we're going to fix everything we can't <laughs> because of the nature of life and the nature of humans but um um, I also think of it as kind of like having your daily fix, <laughs> yeah. you know, just of hope, yeah. you know, so yes. that you can keep going, um, so that you have the energy to remain focused on the things that make life worth living. Um, you know, seven, um, seven, seven, I think seven or eight people a day suicide in Australia, and that's one of the wealthiest countries in the world. So, you know, that's an immediate extinction crisis, isn't it? Mm. It's sad that it happens that way. Mm. Look, um, do we have any other questions? Yeah, I've got a yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's formulated. Thank you. It's uh, mm. certainly inspiring. Sometimes I think you're a bit like a female Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I certainly sympathise with your whole stance. Um, as you know, I've got a bit of a background in this sort of thing, working in council as a cultural officer there for five years, trying to get the bureaucrats to actually pay attention to uh, the benefits of uh, culture, art, and so on. When I was young, I used to read a, a fellow named Colin Wilson. I don't know if you recall him. In the 60s, he wrote a book which made quite a splash. But one of these basic ideas was that uh, the, the artists of the Western world had betrayed human beings by becoming so negative themselves. And he uh, singled out people like Aldous Huxley, Samuel Beckett, and a whole range of other people who were contemporaries of his at the time too. Uh, and he tried to create what he thought was new existentialism, which was based on a more positive attitude towards life. Um, with that stance of Colin Wilson's, he was a, sort of like a bit of a, um, uh, an advocate, but Bernard Shaw too had, had some of the same positive attitude until everything went wrong with uh, socialism and Stalin and so on. But um, um, he was trying to create that, but it's not popular and it never has been popular in Western culture. Um, and the artists themselves have very often been the most depressed people in the whole world, as you know, especially if you look at the lives of poets. Uh, you know, uh, disasters. Um, so, I think, um, you know, while we're talking about this, and I think that, you know, artists can be great mobilizers and they can be inspiring and, and all that sort of thing, they're the ones who need uh, 
picking up and helping uh, more than anybody, I think, very often. And, uh, and this um, environment we're living in at the moment, a lot of artists just feel as though um, society doesn't care if they fall into a big hole on the ground. And, uh, and uh, to a large degree, that's true. I mean, society at large. Um, that's a little bit of a, a negative, but I'm just wondering how you compute those ideas. Um, that's exactly why I do seven solution stories a day, and I try and find things to help people, keep people buoyant, and to not just focus on what's going wrong. Because that's, you know, we talk about um, having balance in the media, but there isn't, there's balance between what's true and what's false. That's what we seem to be saying is balance. Like, let's share what's true and what's false. And then we have balanced media. But what about taking a different way of looking at it and saying balance is the things that are going wrong and the things that are going right. Or presenting things within a solutions framework so that we say, this is what's going wrong, but this is what people are trying to, are trying to or are doing about it to fix it. If you, you know, I'm, parenting is a big part of my life and I just imagine, you know, if I had a little 11 year old girl, would I say to her, darling, you know, you're going to suddenly see me raped in front of daddy, then daddy beheaded and then probably me beheaded as well. And then you'll get put into someone's cellar for two years and you'll probably be sexually abused for two years and then when you come out um, when you finally escape and run away and get saved you'll discover that the world is just about to head into the sixth extinction phase and you don't have long anyway now I wouldn't tell my child that and I think it's about framing things differently I wouldn't lie to my child about the world, but I would think, how can I, how can I present the world in a way that makes them want to keep living as well? But there's, it's not, you know, diversity means you get a bit of everything. You know, you get the doom, and you know, you get a bit of everything. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should have candy-coloured a candy-coloured world, I think that would be horrific. All I'm doing is, and I, I wouldn't expect all of the media to do what I'm doing. There needs to be investigative journalism and there needs to be everything, but I'm just saying there's a big part of the balance that's missing and that's telling the stories of the people working really hard on the ground to do beautiful things and to fix things and to do great things in their community. And there are, artists who are really depressed and um, saying things like that and for some reason our culture has taken them to the top but there are other artists who weren't doing that and never got to the top why is that you know not all artists are depressed we just have made depressed artists successful so the, in journalism, we get told that if it bleeds, it leads. It makes more money. Yes. It makes more money to sell depressing things. And that's because we are run by a, you know, a um, money-making culture. If media was not for profit, 
perhaps mm. we would get more balance. Yes, one thing they leave out, sorry, uh, is the, the enthusiasm of the younger generation who I placed my hope in. You know, the, uh, yes. You know, there might be a huge resurgence of you know, environmental warriors and people coming from the young people. Um, I was just going to ask you on that note. Obviously, it bleeds and bleeds, and that's you know, many of the media is focusing on fearfulness. They want to create as much fear as possible. So, but in your experience, in, in your articles, what, what are some of the most popular kind of angles or most, um, what do you get the most feedback from, from people? What do they respond to the most to your positive um, stories? Stories, what people... So in the last couple of days, the stories that have had over 300 likes have been the young boy in Ireland who won the Google competition for taking microplastics out of water and Maggie Beer trying to get healthy food into nursing homes where people are starving because they're just being fed such horrible food. So... Um, well, no, that, so I guess that one's environment, one's people, you know, like yeah. things, things of people being kind. One that was very popular last week was um, a supermarket where they have a chat aisle. So lonely people can actually, they, the staff get trained to chat and they have a little corner where people can go and sit and chat to one another because we have what they're describing as an ep epidemic of loneliness now. And so people who are putting something in place so that people won't be lonely. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting to see which stories kind of shoot through the roof in terms of everyone liking them and which um, some of the ones that I think are really important don't always get liked that much. But, but you know, it's good. It just shows you. Um, but, but some of them are really extraordinary. They just are so popular. Um, yes, well, yes, it was uh, five past four. Yes. There are there are lots of ways um, that people can get involved. We've just started. We'll be launching the arts and cultural program of the Pluriversity in about two weeks, and what we're doing there is trying to connect young people to creative people with skills and share skills so that they don't feel alone and that they learn as much as possible and we're doing all different sorts of learning like mentorships, workshops, um, just coming along to a youth cafe which we hold regularly and speaking to young people about what you've done with your life and how you've managed to get past 24 without killing yourself. Um, you know, just sharing so that they feel connected to the community, sharing the stories, liking. You can go onto the thebigfix.org and we have a newsletter, you can sign up for that. Um, we're going to be trying to, you know, do what we've done in Blackheath in other communities. Um, but there, there are, I guess there's lots of ways because there are so many aspects <coughs> of what we're doing. So if you're interested, just let me know. And, um, 
I just know that you're also biodiverse. I wouldn't give you one solution. <laughs> There'd be lots of different ways people could contribute. Now, you're going to be able to hang around while we have a cup of coffee. Sure. Because if anybody wants to approach and talk to Liz, here's your opportunity. So. And if, you, um, if you've never had the, the magazine or seen the little black thing that we do here, I've, I've got a whole pile of them. And, you know, this just shows you how easy it is. All this is is a little what's on calendar so that anyone who does anything in the arts or anything else in the community gets helped with promotion. But we've been doing this every month and we have a quite a complex website as well. Um, in Blackheath we have just under 4,000 people and we have on our website we've got over 80 community groups and over 300 businesses listed and we're trying to just get everyone more connected and create that sticky community. and. We've been doing this for almost a year and somebody, one business or person, has stepped up every month to fund it. So it hasn't cost us a cent and we distribute a thousand so that older people who aren't on the internet can also get the news because you can't assume that everyone has access to the internet. So we're just trying to make everything as accessible as possible so that no one's left out. Okay. Thank well. you. Thank you.